This is not the media. This is hell. Today, we reconsider the impact of labor imposed upon us by capital and the effects work can have upon our physical bodies. Sure, we can get calluses from working with our hands, but the effects of working on our bodies goes far deeper than that. And according to today's guest, that labor reaches all the way down to the microbial level. And when that labor is suddenly disrupted by, say, a pandemic, it can lead to a reconsideration of labor's relationship with capital. We'll be discussing how the impact of labor on the physical body can lead to physical adaptations that reinforce, if not cause, racism, and how disease can lead to having anti-immigrant beliefs, as well as Western medicine as a colonial project and science as surveillance, when we speak with Tamara Fernando, author of the Hypocrite Reader article, Death at the Pearl Fishery, which you can read at hypocritereader.com. You can follow Tamara on Twitter at Tamara Fernando 3. Thanks to Erica for emailing us from Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, and suggesting Tamara as a guest on the show. Erica admits she is biased as she is the editor of Hypocrite Reader, but Erica telling us about listening to the show while walking around Bishkek and her now having our conversations we've had on the air embedded within the architecture as she walks by. That was amazing. So thank you, Erica. And of course, we'll wrap up this week as we do most weeks with the moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorch. And this week, Jeff auditions new horsemen for the apocalypse. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. And we do not talk about President Trump's tweets on This Is Hell because they're stupid, distract us from more important issues, and are nothing more than clickbait that traps the media. And they fall for it every time. But this morning, Trump tweeted... Delay the election until people can properly, securely, and safely vote. Now, just in case you are freaking out like I was when I saw this tweet this morning, the New York Times is reporting Mr. Trump has no authority to unilaterally change the date of the election, which is set by federal law and is determined by Congress, not the president. So I guess we didn't have to mention that tweet either, and you can ignore it too. But think about it. He's not even a good Machiavellian. If if you want to delay the elections, blame it on COVID-19, the pandemic, not mail-in voting. I'm sorry, I've said too much. Way too much. Also, in COVID-19 news, former Republican presidential candidate Herman Cain has died from coronavirus. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, any plans for your weekend? Uh, Yeah, pondering if there is an opposite word for horny in the English language. I don't think there is. I've been thinking about this. uh, A lot. Why are you the opposite of horny? Do you need to use this word for? I aspire to, but just like. What's going on in our society where there's just we don't have a word for the opposite of horny? <laughs> there, think about it. People have been uh, suggesting it on Twitter. None of them are coming close. There's just not an opposite word for horny. I'm <laughs> thinking about this all weekend. Nothing rhymes with it either. It's a real issue. Uh, corny. <laughs> eh, I guess. Porny? Porn- Name another one after corny. That's it. <laughs> I think I'm going to be spending the entire weekend cleaning the house because it's finally going to not be so horribly hot that I can actually do something in my house. So, yep, this weekend I'm cleaning house. This week's question from hell is, what is the coronavirus cure? They don't want you to know about what's the coronavirus cure they do not want you to know about. Leave your answer at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us. If you have our favorite answer, we will you will be getting a This Is Hell face mask. You can see them right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. Alex, how are listeners answering this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? Jacob H. says, 5G. Mark A. says, the red pill. 
Shane M says, a European-style healthcare system? <laughs> Marco G says, a fully automated luxury gay space communism and suppositories. I want to get that on my business card. What is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? Jacob J says, a free vaccine developed in China. Alan G says, yeasty Kropotkin memes. Gross. A gorilla G says, equal parts absinthe, brandy, and ginger beer over ice with a large wedge of lemon. Enjoyed responsibly and sensibly paired with basic PPE, social distancing, comprehensive testing and tracing, and increased economic support for ordinary people. It's called a razzle-dazzle. That sounds delicious and very safe. Uh, finally, Arc T says, whatever it is they told me, I'm back to ibuprofen for now. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is Hell, and we got an email at chuckatthisishell.com immediately after yesterday's show. From Giddon, who writes, you have challenged your listenership to prove you wrong on your assertion that This Is Hell is God's favorite radio show. Well, I hate to break it to you, but there is no God and thus no favorite radio show. Proof of this is in the pudding. The pudding is the heinous fact that Dick Cheney thrives while Michael Brooks is dead. No God would permit this great injustice unless God is a total effing dick. Which is definitely a possibility, but if God is a total effing dick, they would not like the exceptional inquisitiveness and analysis offered by your radio program. Total effing dicks like reactionary, blunt force trauma-like propaganda akin to the New York Times. So as much as I love your assertion, it's wrong. All the best, Giddon. Giddon, we truly appreciate your analysis, but remember... We are all made in God's image, and there are a lot of us who are effing dicks. So it would only be expected that God is an effing dick, but it's also everything else you can find throughout every niche of society and, and culture, which means I think we should lay off on God being an effing dick as much as I, I think they may be schizophrenic and in desperate need of our love and understanding. Or they're an effing dick. Whatever. We also had a couple listeners leave five-star reviews of This Is Hell on Facebook. Bradley gave us five stars and wrote, This Is Hell is such a valuable resource. Thanks to Chuck, Alex, and everyone that's contributed to the show. And we hope to be a more valuable resource as we get our archives together to make them more accessible to everyone. If you want to help us in that endeavor, go to thisishell.com and click on support. We also got a five-star review from past guest Remy Debs Bruno, who was on the show back in April with Medway Baker to talk about their article at Cosmonaut. Remy and Medway wrote the essay, The End of the End of History, COVID-19, and 21st Century Fascism. An interview you can find, again, at thisishell.com, and it was a fascinating interview, so you got to check it out. Remy writes, This is Hell is the best radio show in the U.S., bar none. Even though I haven't listened to all of them, I'm confident in that assertion based on the serious, advanced approach to current events, politics, and culture, mixed with some gallows humor, of course, that This Is Hell displays in every episode. Having this show in my lineup of hopeful distractions from the grind has noticeably improved the quality of my drudger, I mean, days. Thanks, Remy, I, and everyone who makes This Is Hell part of your daily drudgery. And I'm thinking for a, of a new uh, tagline for the show. This Is Hell, your hopeful distraction from our daily drudgery. But to be honest, when I am done with a week of shows, I'm not what you would call filled with hope. 
Coming up on This Is Hell, we'll take a deep dive into the pearl diving industry of the 19th century and see what it reveals about capital and labor and their impact on the human body. We'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. We will have more of your answers to this week's question from Al, which, again, is what is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? What is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? And we'll be announcing our favorite. And the winner of this week's uh, question from Hell gets a This Is Hell face mask, which you can see at our website right now, thisishell.com, when you click on support. During the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, Jeff auditions new horsemen for the apocalypse. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. The planet's on fire. So yes, this is hell. Indian Ocean pearl diving in the late 19th century to fill the British Empire's demand for pearls is a case study in the impact of labor on the human body. So what happens when that physical relationship with capital is suddenly disrupted by, say, a pandemic? Here to guide us through pearl diving, the human body, labor, and capital during a pandemic. Tamara Fernando is the author of the Hypocrite Reader article, Death at the Pearl Fishery, which you can find at hypocritereader.com. Tamara, welcome to This Is Hell. Thanks so much, Chuck. It's great to be here. Tamara is a PhD student at the University of Cambridge researching the marine environmental history of the Indian Ocean with a focus on natural pearl fisheries in the 19th century. Her writing has appeared in Himal, South Asian, Lady Science, and Environmental History Now. You can follow Tamara on Twitter at TamaraFernando3. And thanks to Erica for emailing us from Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, to suggest <laughs> Tamara as a guest. That was really fantastic and probably the greatest email we've ever received on the show. <laughs> so you write that the world underwater is different from that of the air. This would have been clear to the unnamed pearl diver in 1858 who found himself submerged five meters below the waves in the Gulf of Mamar. This is in the Indian Ocean between India and Sri Lanka. His diving stone emitted a soft thud as it made contact with the seafloor. Splashes echoed around him as a thousand thousand other men and boys plunged into the water. The currents did not throw up sand to cloud his vision uh, that day, and the high noon light was strong. He pried off 15 oysters, each one firmly crusted to a rugged coralline mass. Soon his lungs started to burn, feeling lightheaded. He took hold of his basket and kicked up off back to the surface. How hard was this work? And what do you mean by a diving stone? Because before we even get into the other deeper aspects of this, I, I want people to have an uh, understanding of how this, what this diving was like. How hard was this work and what is a diving stone? Right. Good, good question, Chuck. So this is, to be clear, this is natural pearling. So if you were to buy a pearl today, it would be the result of what we call culturing. So, um, you introduce a little bead and some mantle tissue into an oyster to produce pearls to order, which is not how things worked before the 1920s. So this is, you know, you're dredging up oysters randomly in the hope that one in 40 of them has a pearl inside. Um, and this is free diving. So there's no equipment, there's no breathing tank or anything. These are men who are working as deep as 16 meters underwater. So a diving stone could, you know, weigh 10 to 15 pounds. And what men would do is they would rope the stone around their feet um, to expedite the descent to the bottom of the ocean and then try to grab up as many oysters as they could before coming back up to the surface. Um, and we know, I mean, there are still communities that practice free diving in this region. I think there's a difference between the way it's practiced now and this sort of industrial colonial plantation that's set up that I talk about in the paper. 
because we have medical records from the fishery which record a whole series of, you know, adverse effects related to this work. So ruptured eardrums, nosebleeds, death from drowning, decompressing too fast, um, even incidents of men who are hit with other men's diving stones while they're underwater or coming up. So it really, really is arduous work um, and work that's deeply tied to your income and livelihood, because if you didn't finish fish enough oysters, then you weren't going to have anything to sell to make a living at the end of the day. And you talk about the other forms of life in the ocean that can have a, an, a horrible effect on the human body. You write the bulk of the ocean's biomass in the form of minute plankton, crabs, copepods, diatoms, and uh, I'm going to get these all wrong. Feromina uh, fiera uh, went unnoticed. Amongst these life forms were the larvae of parasitic tapeworms, which invaded and infected oysters, stimulating pearl production. Present also were vast numbers of another bacterium that was attached for now to crustacean hosts, but capable of moving from aquatic reservoirs to human insides. Of the impacts of the latter, however, the diver was soon to become all too aware. What would happen to the divers once these crustaceans got into their system? Right. So I think one thing that's important to establish here is that the nature of work or labor at the pearl fishery um, makes the impact of epidemic diseases like cholera in this case much, much worse. Um, so the pearl fishery is a seasonal event. You could have up to 15,000, 15 to 30,000 people could be housed in a camp that the British Empire would construct. And this is a makeshift and temporary camp that's crowding vast numbers of people together in conditions that could be deeply unsanitary. Um, and in, in essence, what this means is that once an epidemic takes hold, it spreads very quickly through the camp. And I guess what I was intrigued by was all these stories of divers saying, look, People are falling sick. We know that there are men dying at the camp. We don't want to work anymore. And um, imperial or colonial officials saying, um, trying to stop these types of negotiations and saying, you still have to go out to sea um, to work, to dive for pearls. And I, I guess I was really intrigued by how cholera or disease became a bargaining chip at the fishery and allowed divers to also stop work or, you know, find solidarity across different groups. Because the crustaceans put them at risk more to death when they did uh, come in contact with cholera. And you write that the recent rapid proliferation of the coronavirus amongst humans has thrown our notions of work into disarray. But this is not a new reality. Microbial cultures circulating in the water or the air, passing from intermediate hosts to humans through gastric barriers into intestines, lungs, blood, have long inflected labor relations. This leftist toolkit of strikes, petitions, mass movements, and city politics may tempt us to take the body for granted as the cor corporeal is swallowed up by amorphous forces of anti-capitalist resistance, trade unionism, or class consciousness. COVID-19, however, calls for a strengthened attentiveness to the body, which I find fascinating. Many guests on our show have pointed out how the pandemic has revealed fissures within capitalism. If it does, how can a strengthened attentiveness to the body possibly even challenge capitalism? Hmm, that's a good question. I guess it allows, well, in the in the case of the pearl fishery, it really allows for um, 
labor relations to be renegotiated. So in events where capital is willing to use force and violence to compel people to produce for them, um, this sort of attention to the body and to sickness really allows those who are working to say, um, we're not going to work. And that's, you know, in the case of the pearl fishery, also a very diverse um, labor force. So you have Muslim divers, Catholic divers, divers who are speaking multiple different languages. But when an epidemic takes hold and the whole fishery camp or the whole body of workers is really imperiled, it seems like that that really is an opportunity for workers to band together and say, these conditions are unacceptable and we aren't going to um, to continue to work under these conditions. You point out that the until the dominance of pearl culturing technology in the 1930s, as you were discussing earlier, thousands of men in tropical waters worked as pearl divers in order for glass-fronted New York and Parisian jewelry houses to sell strands of pearls. Divers worked without recourse to urban politics or union protections or indeed any kind of labor law. In the Gulf of Manar, a shallow strip of water between South India and Ceylon that produced a quarter of the world's p- pearls, British colonial authorities rigorously controlled and surveilled the bodies of the divers they employed and did not hesitate to use force to extract labor. How controlled and surveilled were the lives of pearl divers in the Gulf of Mana by the British? Could could this be described as, well, not necessarily slavery, but slave-like conditions? I I think in part, yes, Jack. I mean, there's definitely an element of coercion and violence. I also don't want to gloss the fact that, you know, these are communities who are very proud of their, you know, seaworthiness and their ability to dive. And there's there's a whole world outside of this controlling colonial gaze of folklore and legends and stories about the sea and the underwater. So I don't I don't want to ignore that. Um, I think what's distinct here is that the British colonial state really wants to extract as much profit as possible. So when divers say, look, we're exhausted, we've been working straight for two weeks, let us go home. The answer is you can't go home because we have another week of fishing to complete. So I think that's what makes this um, I think that's what makes this different or distinct. I also found really fascinating this idea, as you were mentioning earlier, the idea of illness and epidemic disease as a possible site of resistance, the common ground of disease that people might be sharing. How powerful can the political power of the common ground of disease be amongst those who are in the labor class? That's a good question, Chuck. I mean, I think the the intervention is where is solidarity really made cross-cutting? So we know, for instance, in the fishery, oftentimes the first people to fall sick would be um, workers who were hired as sort of sanitary crews by the colonial state. So instead of, you know, accepting any responsibility for the architecture of the camp and the conditions of labor, which might have worsened the impact of disease, what um, the British would do is they would essentially enlist crews of sanitary workers, dis, you know, disposable human bodies in a sense, to clean the camp, um, to make it less likely that disease would spread. And these were often the first men, women, and sometimes children who would die at the fishery. So we know that young, young children who are forced to clean the streets of human waste 
or um, old women who were shopkeepers selling bananas in the bazaar would be found dead inside of their huts. Um, so I think there there is a question about you know whose lives are are dispensable and who falls ill first, and really whether that's enough to galvanize solidarity across different castes and languages and regional groups. I, I think is the question really to ask. So instead of addressing the systemic issues, they only apply the immediate fix, the band aid, which again sounds very much like how we are responding to the pandemic here in the United States or to racialized police matter, violence for that matter. Why does capitalism or I know this is a pretty big picture question, but why does <laughs> capitalism or imperialism ignore the long term solution instead only focus on the patch that I, you know, that keeps the ship floating? Why do they, why is there just the focus on the cleanup crews instead of the focus on the environment in which creates a disease? Mm. I mean, I think it's worth saying, and this is something, you know, a lot of guests on your show talk about, that there is imperialism or capitalism are sustained by ideologies, right? Um, in this case, the labor of diving is deeply, deeply racialized. Um, this is when sort of nascent race theory is really taking hold. So the British have a whole series of theories about certain racial groups being closer to nature or to the sea. You know, Tamils are amphibious and they're dexterous with their toes in a way that, you know, Europeans would never be able to pick up such tiny pearls with their fat, clumsy white fingers. Or um, it's really black skin that repels sharks and allows these men to work underwater. So I think, you know, maybe part of the the way to answer this question is to look at what sort of ideologies underlie capitalism or imperialism to, to allow for this kind of quick fix solution to be applied without really having to think too hard about it. So do you think the physical effects then of labor drove racism, the physical effects of labor on the human body drove or underlined or reinforced racism amongst whites? I think I think in part that's definitely fair to say. I think even even when it comes to the impact of disease, I mean this is you know what European officials will call Asiatic cholera and even after these so-called advances in bacteriology which replace a certain way of thinking about the tropics as unhealthy, diseased, filthy, backward places um, where just the air is enough to generate tropical fever or tropical disease. Then there's a sort of revolution which says, no, you know, this is about microbes and microbes can be carried in human hosts. But I think, you know, even after this so-called Pasteurian revolution, there is a, a recourse to dirty, filthy people bringing disease, which really, I think, ignores a lot of the ways in which colonialism creates the conditions that make um, the spread of disease and these types of vulnerabilities possible. Why erase labor's impact on the human body and replace it with a racial theory? I mean, what is the point of ignoring the impact of capital on the human body and instead attributing it to some fictionalized racial difference. How does that help imperialism? I mean, it's cheap is a kind of crude and short answer. Um, it 
it was just much, much, much less expensive for the state to rely on South Indian freedivers than it was to, say, rely on European men who they have very occasionally have. There's a, a man named Mr. Peachy in the 1860s and 1870s who's diving in Ceylon, and he's paid what, you know, 10 boats would be paid together um, for two days of labor in a diving suit with a tank of oxygen to do the same work. So um, it just really, you know, balances out the imperial ledger much better to, to rely on this kind of work. This would, when there's, well, you write that without divers, obviously there would be no pearl. So this would seem to give a great deal of leverage to divers. However, to what extent does that kind of physical labor lead to far more harsh control and surveillance of divers' bodies. When physical labor has that kind of leverage, when they are the linchpin to the business model, how much does that increase the brutality and cruelty that would be targeted at them? Good question, Chuck. I mean, it's a difficult one to answer because in some ways it goes both ways. So yes, you have a workforce that's poorly remunerated, that's the victim of, you know, police police brutality, we can call it at this point. Um, but divers also do have the possibility to withdraw their bodies from the interaction. So to come to the pearl fishery, because these are all maritime communities, they derive on their own boats overseas which makes them very, very dangerously mobile. So there are several instances in the archive where colonial officials will wake up and find that divers have stolen away to their boats in the night and just um, sailed back to their towns because they just withdrew completely. Um, other times divers would run away either into the forest or further up north to try to get a ferry back home to the towns that they came from. So that there was potential in the body also just to withdraw labor. Um, but it's also, I mean, it's definitely a site of surveillance. One of the big concerns for imperial authorities was, was that they would make, um, a, they would turn over less profit because divers would steal pearls. And a lot of these concerns were also located in the body. So, for instance, they, they were convinced that divers would hide pearls um, within their gums, even inside their eyelids and their nasal cavities. Um, and there's, you know, extreme amounts of violence. There's even records in the archive of, you know, enemas being forcibly administered because they believed the divers would have swallowed pearls um, in order that they wouldn't be, you know, sold by the state so that the colonial state would make a profit. And you point out that the advances in uh, bacteriology also draw, drew the state much more forcefully into divers' private lives. Living quarters were inspected twice a day during the cholera epidemic by a team of medical staff. Persons working in the camp as shopkeepers, servants, cooks, or sanitary staff might be forced to undergo random checks and ferried off to a quarantine hospital with no advance warning, separated from family and peers. So to what extent is this kind of treatment through surveillance rooted in imperialism? I think it's fairly standard in terms of the mechanics of the state. I guess what's interesting is that 
disease and colonial medicine really ushers in and makes possible a lot of these functions historically. So, you know, greater attention to migration, the fact that um, people aren't going to come and go freely in boats from the coast anymore. We're actually going to keep tabs on every vessel that comes. So you're sort of seeing the hardening up of national boundaries and additional modes of census taking and tabulating who's arrived and who's left. So I think the the more interesting story is that um, these sort of medical histories or histories of colonial medicine are deeply embedded with the way state power as we know it now develops. And you talk about how immigrants would bring disease and people who don't look like you would bring disease. To what degree is disease the driving force of racism, of anti-immigrant beliefs, not only here in the West, but everywhere? To what extent is racism and anti-immigration all founded from disease? I think it has a lot to do with it. Um, what what I would point out here, though, is that um, the colonial state is very willing to suspend its so-called humanitarian concern with disease if it looks like they aren't going to turn a profit. So even in years where, um, say, authorities in Ceylon are very worried about cholera outbreaks, they're determined to get divers to come. So they'll actually... Um, they'll send notice to towns in South South India and they'll say, well, actually, we're willing to let 300 men travel free of any kind of immigration check as long as they promise to dive at the pearl fishery. Um, so sort of commercial or capital exigencies are enough of an excuse to kind of forget about this so-called concern with humanitarian prevention of the spread of disease. And you're right that, as many historians of medicine have pointed out, imperialism often posited the eradication of disease in the tropics and the civilizing mission as coterminous, coterminous. That is having the same boundaries of or extent in space, time, or meaning. Uh, the promise of imperialism was civilizing and eradication of disease. So how did imperialism end up doing the opposite of both. Was that promise just a con, a scam to get popular support for what is a brutal, cruel and racist project? I think in large part, yes, just and certainly to start with. I mean, keep in mind that this kind of medicine, particularly in places like India and Ceylon, is initially, I mean, the first hospitals that are set up are exclusively for um, Europeans, so white soldiers, settlers and sailors, particularly because they're worried about the fact that British military presence is falling in ill. And it means that empire is not going to be able to survive or be sustained in, quote unquote, the tropics. Um, and it sort of, you know, grows out from something that's purely put in place to uphold the military presence. It grows out to, to be concerned with local populations because they're worried once again that epidemics that are affecting indigenous people will then be transferred on to colonial troops and it'll make the military presence weak. So that's really the sort of origin story for medicine or hospitals um, in, in places like Ceylon. So um, the sort of the be benevolence of this is a kind of positive fiction that's tagged on much later. 
And you, uh, you also point out that many were subject to Western medical treatment, even when they were they asked for indigenous medicine, such as Averit, Ayurvedic, sorry, Siddha and Ayurvedic. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm always getting these words wrong. Or Yanani <laughs> treatments. Okay. Standards of adequate sanitation were enforced with the same rigor of policing labor to extract maximum profit. Western medicine imposed through force, erasing local practices, all in the name of profit. How much is the way Western science approached uh, the the people that they were colonizing an expression of colonialism because I think people just see it as science as something that is objective as something that doesn't have any kind of political project to it so so is Western was Western mm-hmm. science approached as an expression of uh, colonialism as well Ab- absolutely Chuck I mean you, you're 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 completely right and I, I think you know medicine science these two are sort of really going hand in hand at the moment we're talking about. And it's also not to say, I think sometimes um, those of us historians who've read too much Foucault, there is a tendency to say, well, you know, European empires went in and they destroyed everything. um, And it, it was just a story of oppression. And I don't think that story is really true either, because there is incorporation of a lot of pre existing traditions of um, care or, or medicine, you know, as you mentioned, Ayurveda, Siddha, or Yunani medicine. Um, I think what's clearer here, or the story I talk about, is of a, a particular Muslim diver who um, was taken away to this Western quarantine hospital um, and wanted Islamic rites of care or burial. So, wanted him to be attended by a priest. And he dies in the hospital and his body is disposed of by colonial authorities. And then what happens is all the men from his village sort of group together and say, um, you know, this is wrong. We don't want our um, our colleagues to be to be treated in this way. And this becomes a sort of big debate around labor and whether they're going to stay and work at the pearl fishery or whether the entire community of 300 divers is going to desert the fishery because you know, the wishes of the community weren't upheld. And the imp- that brings you to the impact of cultural differences revealed by the response of death due to a pandemic becoming a tipping point in a reconsideration of labor relations. Do you see something similar happen- happening today? Are we reconsidering labor relations because of cultural or more to the point race and class differences revealed by the pandemic? I mean, I think the fissures certainly show up much more clearly in terms of which groups are vulnerable, which groups um, the state is willing to consider dispensable or put on the front line. I, I, I guess the question really is then what response do we formulate in relation to that? And is this really a moment for cross-cutting solidarity or a moment where we, you know, sacrifice the most vulnerable members of society. The divers were what we call today essential workers. So why were, at least for the empire, they were. So why were the divers not protected from the disease? If the industry's biggest asset, most important asset is physical labor, why not do everything necessary to make certain that labor is sustainable rather than take risks at the long-term sustainability of your controlled labor. I don't understand why they would take so many risks with the workers. Were they just that, I hate to use this word, disposable because there was an abundant supply of potential divers? 
I think that's partly true. Um, I think they're thinking of what the political consequences would be. Keep in mind another thing that makes divers in Ceylon vulnerable is um, the fact that they're migrant divers. So there's going to be less political clout in the capital, in Colombo, um, compared to groups that are permanently settled on the island. So I think that makes them a whole lot more vulnerable. And sort of the politics around labor plays out differently because they're a migrant um, labor force. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I would, I would have to say that it has something to do with um, what the political consequences are for the state and whether they think they can get away with it or not. Post-pandemic, do you believe there will be increased pressure today on non-healthcare labor that was determined to be essential to be eliminated, to be potentially automated? Because what I kept thinking about in your book was how uh, the pandemic reveals, reveals the capital, the labor they need to eliminate, and that is essential workers. Does a pandemic reveal the most essential workers? And does that make those most that most essential labor a target of capital to be eliminated and replaced in some way? It's a good question. Um, I'm, I'm not an expert on this to answer, Chuck. As far as I've seen, I mean, it's sort of thus far, at least in the short term, has doubled down. Um, where I'm based in the UK or across Europe, it's kind of led to, um, you know, a, a, a reliance on agricultural work and incentives for more workers from, say, Romania to be brought in to ensure that people have crops on the table to eat. Um, of course, whether one is, again, guaranteeing protections and security and safety for those workers, I think, is is up for debate. And then, again, how we generate sort of political will behind protecting these communities. Um and 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 I think balancing balancing livelihoods. I mean, divers in some instances, even when there is an outbreak of cholera, divers want to continue to dive because this is how they make their their living. Um, so really, also thinking about you know what's what is going to replace, um, you know how how these communities are going to put food on the table at the end of the day. So how devastating was the synthetic pearl to divers, How uh, to their economic well-being, their financial well-being, their quality of life? Um, I mean, the, the industry dies out completely. There's sort of cottage industry attempts to restart um, cultured pearling, and um, there, there are still communities of free divers, but... Um, not in any regular or routine way. And I think for small scale people who work in small scale fisheries, I know particularly now with the pandemic and COVID, um, because seafood often has to be fresh, a lot of these fishing communities are really, really devastated um, because they're, they're unable to go to market and to sell their wares. And they're very reliant on people coming every day to buy you know, fresh fish to take home because they they would often transition into other occupations like fishing. Um, so yeah, it's they've been very very hard hit currently. 
One last question for you, Tamara. Tamara Fernando is the author of the Hypocrite Reader article, Death at the Pearl Fishery, which is fascinating, and you should all check it out at hypocritereader.com. Tamara is a Ph.D. student at the University of Cambridge researching the marine environmental history of the Indian Ocean. You can find her writing at places like Himal, South Asian, Lady Science, and Environmental History Now. You can follow Tamara on Twitter at TamaraFernando3. And again, thanks to Erica for emailing us from Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, and suggesting Tamara as a guest on the show. One last question for you, Tamara, and as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate the response. This one isn't all that hellish, though. How can (laughs) recognizing the impact of labor on our physical bodies, how can that be revolutionary? How can that be transformative? How can that be a different way of understanding the world around us that could bring about revolution? I think what it does more than anything is that it forces us to read bodies in the context of our environments more broadly. And I think that connects a lot of the things we've been talking about, race, class, labor, economies, um, with the climate crisis and what it means to live in a you know, uh, a world on the on the brink of climate crisis to really think that, you know, we are not atomized workers um, producing, we are very much porous to our environments and to the world we live in. And maybe that would allow for us to, to bridge a lot of common strands in order for some kind of, you know, really cross cutting solidarity or revolution. Tamara, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show today. This really is fascinating work, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, more of your writing in the future, and we would love to have you back on the show because this is a fascinating topic. Thank you so much for being on the show this week. Thanks so much for having me, Chuck. Take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up during the Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin, Jeff auditions new horseman for the apocalypse. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from is what is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? What is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell face mask. Get your This Is Hell face mask right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Or be the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell. You can leave your answer right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing the favorite and the winner of a This Is Hell face mask. Alex, do you have any more listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Uh, what is the COVID-19 cure they don't want you to know about? Entropy says guillotine's chopping. Mm. Peter J. says the cure for everything that ails you, a trip down the great golden escalator. Just ask America. <laughs> Sam B. says deep fried cop pineal glands. That's pineal glands. That's gross. Jack, P. Says, or Jack B. says grape nuts. All right. Uh, Tyler R. says getting hit by a... Hold on, Jeff is calling. One sec. <laughs> okay, there we go. I have to do this while I'm uh, getting Jeff on. Uh, Tyler R. says getting hit by a bus and all the memories of every drink you've ever spilled come flooding back in while the comprehensible inevitability of death weighs down weighs you down into the center of the earth where the loudest gong ever to sound booms. And finally you realize everyone is stupid. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Kurt Anything? E says, yeah, a couple more. Kurt E. says demon bukake. Oh, jeez. Oh, Kurt. 
And then finally, uh, <laughs> there's a doctor for that. <laughs> via, uh, via email, hypocrite reader says, whatever brain bleach people are freebasing to make themselves forget that Bush was a war criminal. Flying Needle says decapitation. Neil C says the more deadly COVID 20, secretly known as the American virus. Fred B says not demon sperm, but deviled eggs. Yeehoak says eat farts 69. I miss that guy. Time Cuck says super Viagra. And finally, Adam B says antifreeze. Who said deviled eggs? Uh, Fred B. That's pretty clever. That's pretty clever. And hey, he was the winner from last week, so he's not going to win this week. But I like that anyway, Fred B. Double eggs. Uh, let's see. Uh, so you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But uh, you got to have your answers by the end of today's show. Uh, after the moment of truth, as we do every week, we will be announcing this week's winner. This week on the Moment of Truth, Jeff auditions New Horseman for the Apocalypse on Patreon tomorrow live at patreon.com slash thisishell at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time and podcast shortly after. We are playing our July 7th, 2007, yes, 777 interview with Dr. Edward Rimes, author of When Racism is Law and Prejudice is Policy. He is an internationally recognized authority in the areas of critical race theory and black studies. Edward was on to talk with us about his Black Agenda Report article that had just been posted, Caucasian Please, America's Cultural Double Standard for Misogyny and Racism, wherein Dr. Rimes argues mainstream media pundits should look at the violence perpetuated by their own racism and sexism. Also on Patreon tomorrow, I have something to admit. I have actually seen the physical face of the deep state, and it is very, very sad because of the coronavirus. No, I have not gone off the deep end into the shallow end of the QAnon pool of logic. And you know what happens when you think you are diving into the deep end, and it's actually shallow, right? You get a head injury, and that can lead to dementia, just like those people who suffer from the mental disorder that is QAnon. No, the deep state that I saw... I've seen before. The deep state I saw last week and the deep state I will likely have to face again is the deep state of Comcast customer service. But you can only hear Dr. Rhymes on mainstream media racism. And my most recent scare from Comcast, seriously, I'm very concerned about Benjamin, who is not in a good place at all. By subscribing to our Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and is podcast immediately after at patreon.com slash this is hell. If you do become a subscriber on Patreon, not only do you get This Is Hell advertising stickers, a special secret code that gives you five bucks off all This Is Hell merchandise, and we thank every subs- new subscriber during the Patreon podcast. So subscribe to our weekly Friday Patreon only podcast featuring a classic interview and a new monologue exclusively for subscribers. If you sign up now, you get access to all of our Patreon podcasts. And so far, there's been like 250, so it's like another year of hell. By the way, you are going to be getting five bucks off of new merchandise that I will be mentioning a little bit later on the show. During the Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin, as I said, Jeff is going to audition new horsemen for the apocalypse. We'll also read the rest of your answers to this week's question from Hal. We'll find out what's happening on next week's shows. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week were written while I was high. This is Hell. I know you have. Hefe, on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Oh, no, 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 no.
The one important trick when fighting in the War of Armageddon. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the mead. Hey everyone, the world just got a lot more fun and exciting. There are magical creatures everywhere, doctors and poets and farmers of course, but there are also fairies and djinn and unicorns and extraterrestrial pilots. Why have they revealed themselves to us just today? Because we need them. Haven't we needed them before? Not the way we need them now. Humanity is poised on the edge of a cliff. No, not just poised. Humanity has one foot about to step into the abyss. That stepping foot is just right there, arching its arch ahead, flexing its toes out into the void. That's why the djinn revealed themselves. To fly to the brink, fingers interlaced, to catch our wayward foot and gently turn us 180 degrees to firmer ground. That's what the djinn gon' do. If it needs the help of a pegasus, a dragon, or a middle-earth deus ex machina eagle, no problem. Jin will just whistle. You know how a jinn whistles, don't you? If only it were just stepping off a cliff that were the problem, but we also have a gun in our mouth. That's where the fairies come in. A fairy will just snatch away that bullet as it's leaving the gun barrel and transport it to another location, probably a quiet pond. Plop, like Basho's frog. Basho, the Edo period haiku master. You've all heard of Basho, the Edo period haiku master. You heard of him, right? You will. But if it were just the bullet in the cliff. But also, for some reason, we've got a syringe needle in our arm filled with mercury, and we're about to hit the plunger. But the ETs have us covered. They're really the only ones who can separate liquids commingling inside the human body, and they dispose of mercury by feeding it to a small worm the size of a barley grain, a worm that has no problem cutting through minerals and digesting them with ease. It's a long story. But if it were just the cliff, the bullet, and the mercury injection, we might have been able to save ourselves by non-supernatural means. Sadly, there's also a noose around our necks, about to go taut, the other end tied to the leg of a high-tension electrical tower or maybe just a stripper pole. Before we noticed the noose, we were all confident. Ah, oh, don't worry. The power of positive thinking will save us. Winning friends and influencing people will save us. The seven habits of highly effective people will save us. The five people we meet in heaven will save us. The 10,000 hours of Malcolm Gladwell will save us. The seven wonders of the ancient world will save us. Eating these three fat-destroying fruits will save us. The penis enlargement secret the pharmaceutical companies don't want you to know about will save us. But no. We felt the noose tightening, and with all the other trouble, it was just too much for us. Thank goodness for magic. It's kind of an allegory, like the four horsemen of the apocalypse are an allegory. In this case, the horsemen are gravity, violent impact, toxicity, and strangulation. They don't graft particularly well onto the familiar apocalypse horsemen of famine, uh, war, and two more. Noise pollution? Is that one of them? Anyway, it's not, it's not, that's not the allegory we're operating in. It's a whole different allegory. I'm not sure it's even an allegory. I think altogether, though, they make up destruction. Let's just provisionally agree on that. Famine, of course, 
is one of the main aspects of the destruction chasm we're about to step off the cliff into. Desertification, as I recall, was being reported on in around 1974 when I started reading Frank Herbert's Dune and made it a point to check in on the size of the Sahara. The greenhouse effect had already been described by scientists, and anyone with any clue was habituated to keeping tabs on the ocean's temperature. Now, we're experiencing early conflicts over mass migration. Early, yes, because it's definitely going to get worse. I mean, we probably have enough arable land and fresh water for everyone to live and live peacefully, but famine isn't about global food production. It's about cruel and negligent food distribution. War is about policing that bad distribution, making sure the have-nots stay that way, and the haves have more than they'll ever need. War is just capitalism's simplest dramatic expression. War, already a big market performer among industries, is predicted by the smart set to be the leading human activity in the coming years. War and preparation for war constitute the biggest of humanity's clumsy carbon clown footprints. I had a joke here about renewable war, but it's obsolete and wasteful. Of course, if we are going to continue to wage war across the globe at the increasing rate the smart set predicts, we're going to have to get a lot more energy efficient about it. That's what the smart set says. Oh, won't you listen to what the smart set says? Now, it's pretty evident that if the left is going to get competitive in the end times, we're going to have to up our violence game. Can't keep playing defense. The fascists have had the advantage for a long time. That's going to have to end. Magic swords, belts, rings of power, suits of mail, and other such items donated by or taken from easily overpowered cosplay nerds will, of course, be a big help. And great additions to the home improvement supplies, grocery items like milk, Leaf blowers and other yard work equipment we're using at present. But Renaissance and steampunk accessories won't be enough. The pigs we're up against have much better weapons. Contemporary crime and war weapons. Call of Duty, Assassin's Creed, Grand Theft Auto, Hong Kong Massacre type weapons, and armor from low imagination video games. There's only one way we're going to win, and that's to become warriors. I was reading the book how the Irish saved civilization, and I said to myself, wow, we'd like to save civilization too. Socialism or barbarism, that's the choice we're left with. And in the very ancient epic poem of Ireland, the Tain Bo Cúlni, it describes what you have to do to be a great warrior, or at least what the Irish did. When roaring into battle with their enemies, the warrior underwent what they called a warp spasm, a transformation that sounded like it would be more aid in battle than any equipment ever fashioned by humans. The great warrior hero in the Tain, Kukulin, transforms this way, and my paraphrasing in this description of his warp spasm doesn't stray far from the translation in Thomas Cahill's book. Then the warp spasm seized Kukulin and made him into a monstrous, hideous, shapeless, unheard of thing. 
And I want you all to imagine yourselves accomplishing this in the streets. His muscles and tendons vibrated in his body like a reed in a rapids. And every member and joint and every point and knuckle and all his muscles and innards twisted inside his skin. So his feet and his shins and his knees slid around to the back. And his heels and calves and buttock hams shifted so they passed to the front. He stretched the fibrous braided sinews of his head so that they stood out on the nape of his neck, hill-like lumps, huge, incalculable, vast, immeasurable, and each knot and twist as large as the head of a month-old child. He gnawed and sucked his face inside out, so it was a concave, bloody bowl. He sucked one eye down into his head and popped the other eye out on his cheek. His mouth was distorted and cavernous, till his cheek ripped away from his jawbone and the inside of his throat was completely visible. His lungs flapped and fluttered in his mouth, and his gullet, as he smashed his upper and lower teeth together, producing red, fiery flakes flying from his foaming maw. All could hear the thunderclap of his heart against his rib bones, like the howling of a bloodhound. There were seen the torches of the crow warrior goddess, Bab, and the rain clouds of poison and sparks of glowing red fire blazing and flashing in hazes and mists over his head with the seething of the wild wrath that loomed in raging storm up above him. His hair bristled in rage all over his head like the spears of a huge mighty army and from the spear tips rose twisting anger into the air. The light of victory stood out on his forehead, so that it was as long and as thick as a warrior's whetstone, as high, thick, strong, steady, and long as the mainmast of a warship was the straight spout of dark blood which spewed and sprayed on high from the very ridge of the crown of his skull, so that a black fog of witchery billowed around him and above him like chimney smoke from an inn preparing a king's feast. So, you kids are clever. You 53-year-old Navy vets, too, you can withstand the blows. I saw your video. I've seen several of you in my time, Master Krav Maga and Capoeira and Hula Hoops and Hoverboards and Skateboards and Snowboards, those one-wheeled things and yo-yo tricks and fancy cocktails and such. I know you can master this. And you know these fascists are superstitious. They believe in witch doctors and alien DNA and the flat earth and lizard people. I don't think it's going to take much to strike fear in these pussies. It's pretty obvious they're terrified already. Look at the fear they have of a woman's wide-open tantric vulva. Look how afraid they are of flowers and moms and friendly old men and, of course, black people, even down to little girls. Keeping them in awe of our mysterious powers, I'm pretty optimistic we can win this. Not 100%, but nothing's ever a sure thing, is it? This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. All right, Jeffy. We're up against what? the clock again already. We're already up against the clock. Why do you stand so close to the clock? I don't know. Stay beautiful, Jeffy. You too. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Alex, do we have any more answers to this week's question from Hell? Uh, F5-ing? No. 
my answer to this week's question mail. What is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? Look, I know you think I'm going to say weed. By the way, it's weed. But that would be cliche and expected, despite the real answer being weed. And I don't want to come off as some hack who only makes weed jokes. Again, weed is the COVID cure they don't want you to know about. Got it? But answering with weed is too expected. So I'm going to go with the second most predictable answer. And that is your mom. Hat tip to Pete Valavanis of Carrie's Lounge. The answers I liked the most were I did like Gorilla Gramophonics' uh, drink called the Razzle Dazzle, which sounds very refreshing. I liked Marco saying a fully automated luxury gay space communism. Actually, that part wasn't very... It was good. But when he added and suppositories... I really like that. Dryable Yarn saying having it disappeared in an unmarked van by federal agents. Jack saying dying. dying. Aaron saying we got pandemic as 5G is rolling out, so I'm going with 6G. Garrett L saying being rich. Fred B saying deviled eggs. And I want to thank Eric for saying had a call. Mike for saying thimerosal. And Garrett S for suggesting adrenochrome because it made me look up each and every one of those. And I am going to go with, and you're going to have to look it up on your own, Adrenochrome. That means, Garrett S., you have won this week's question from hell and a This Is Hell face mask. If you're not today's winner, you can still get your This Is Hell face mask by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We want to thank everyone for sending in your answers this week. We want to especially thank those of you who supported completely listener-supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. That's where you can find all the ways to to support This Is Hell, including all of our swag. And we have now put out new swag, including a black trucker's cap a black face mask, and a black tote bag, all of which look very cool. And thanks this week goes to CM Frederick Designs, who writes, I can't believe you picked my answer for this week's question, Mel, and I'm quite excited to win the This Is Hell face mask. That being said, I'm throwing you guys 10 bucks because, one, I really appreciate what you guys do, and two, it's in honor of Michael Brooks. Maybe one day when I have a few more dollars to give, I'll send more in any event. Keep on keeping on. So thanks to CW. Also thanks to John, Jacob, Joseph, and the tithing-like commitment of Brett and Magnificent Me. Alex, who's on next week's show? Uh, Still working on Monday, but on Tuesday, we're really excited to have Cassie Thornton back on the show to talk about her Pluto Press uh, pamphlet, The Hologram, Feminist Peer-to-Peer Health for a Post-Pandemic Future. And on uh, Wednesday, two more people coming back on the show, Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law, will be on to talk about their book, Prison by Any Other Name, the harmful consequences of popular reforms. And then finally Thursday, I'm really looking forward to this because I've been following this person's writing for a while now. William Shoki will be on to talk about his Africa is a Country articles. He's got a roundup of them, but one of them is the existing order of things as the South African ruling class wages a retracted war against the poor and working class. It grows comfortable with the idea that people have more or less accepted the status quo. On Monday, we might be talking about the slow motion coup in Ecuador, so tune in for that. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com with Alex revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is crackers, as in crackers you eat, not 
Cracker Ass Crackers. Thanks to all of this week's guests, including Alexander Kolokotranas. He is the author of the current affairs piece, What Do We Do Once We've Defunded Police? You can find out more about his work by going to participatorybudgeting.org. And thanks to Stephen for suggesting him as a guest. Also, thanks to editor and correspondent Brian Muir, who was on our show to discuss the passing of his friend, Michael Brooks. We've been interviewing uh, Brian for about 20 years now, and you can find the last five years, dozens of interviews at our website, This Is Hell. We also had the return of Ashley Dawson. He's the author of People's Power, Reclaiming the Energy Commons. And right now, only for This Is Hell listeners, exclusive through tomorrow, you can get a discount on Ashley's book, People's Power, by going to orbooks.com and ordering the book there using the code ThisIsHell15, all in caps, ThisIsHell15. 15, and then you will get a free ebook of his earlier work, Extinction. You can find interviews, uh, both those interviews at our website, thisishell.com, uh, as well as all of our interviews with Ashley. And finally, thanks to today's guest, Tamara Fernando, author of the Hypocrite Reader article, Death at the Pearl Factory. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon. Uh, that's about it. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.